Thanks, Brian. Have you ever been lost in a way that makes it really obvious that you are lost? Sometimes I've noticed driving through town, uh, I can tell that the driver in the car in front of me is lost. I can tell by how they drive erratically or how they slow down at intersections. Sometimes the driver in the car that you're a passenger in is lost. And you know what that experience feels like. Sometimes the lost person is you. Hypothetically, like you go to the hospital and you take the stairwell down instead of the elevator because it says that's healthy to do. And so you come out at a door in the basement of St. Francis and you're lost. And you're wandering up and down the hallway going by doorways that say authorized personnel only. And about the third time you go by the desk of somebody who's looking at you, he looks up and he says, are you looking for something? Why, yes, you could tell by the confused and panicked look on my face, couldn't you? Yes, yes, I am looking for something. How do I get out of here? Thankfully, that person knows what to do and gets me out of there. Sit down at some place where there are lots of people this week. Uh, Try Woodman's on Friday night or the mall, or the drive through at Chick-fil-A. Just put on a Chick-fil-A uniform and you can stand there. They'll not stop you. And then just watch people for a couple of minutes. And you'll see that lost look on some people's faces. They are looking for something. And I'm being serious here for a moment. Maybe you can tell by the look of panic. Maybe you can tell by the sheer emptiness in their eyes. I have noticed as I look at people that look of lostness. They're looking. Now you and I are here this morning because we are looking for something, aren't we? We really are. It might be a noble search. It might be a a search for wisdom and for how we can please God with our lives, but we're looking for how we can do that. It might be a desperate search, like you don't know what to do with your addiction, or you don't know how to cope with your teenager or your toddler or your spouse. It might be a search for something that's really shallow and self-focused, like trying to placate your guilt, but without too much work, just so that you can feel happy. It might be for something really good, like how you can be more effective at serving, how your life can be made more fulfilling by giving and by growing up in your walk of faith. Maybe you're looking for that, but you and I, we're here this morning, aren't we? Because we're looking for something. Here we are now, opening up God's Word with the expectation that in there we might find something that will help and give us answers in life. So, Whatever it is, whether you're live here this morning or online, whether you're self-focused or God-focused, whether your search is a noble search or not, I still like to tell people, you're in the right place. You're at the right place to do this today. And along with the other people who are looking for something, you and I are, and guess what? If that's you and that's me, and it is, I've got good news for you this morning. I have found it. We have found it. We have found hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's great news. Followers of Jesus have that real hope. We who have been on this search 
Don't have the panicked and empty look in our eyes because we have found it. And if we could just get others to look to Jesus, they can find it too. Do you believe it? So that's what we're going to urge one another to do for the year of, oh, 2023, which began a couple weeks ago. We are going to encourage everyone to have, here's the phrase, all eyes on Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, real quick, just listen to where that thinking comes from. The writer of Hebrews, after talking of all the great people of faith in the past, says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That word there that's translated looking to Jesus is a word about focus. And it's a word that doesn't just mean to look at, but it means to not look at all other things. It means to look away from other things to be able to focus on Jesus. So much of the dazed and confused state of searching people could be stopped if we could just manage to quit looking in the wrong places and look at Jesus. So for the next several weeks, we're going to listen to Jesus' claims. Who's Jesus? After all, there are probably some other notable historical personalities that we could talk about this year and learn about this year. Why Jesus? Here's why. The reason is because Jesus made claims of greatness that no one else has ever made and proved. And if we acknowledge those claims of Jesus, then it means that you and I are going to think and we're going to live a certain way. Some years ago, C.S. Lewis is credited with uh, putting together what's known as the trilemma. I found that that has actually not, that's not original with him. He just said it in a great way. It actually was voiced in some other ways before him, but I love the way he says it. You've heard it from here before in mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. He goes on to say, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Grab your Bibles. And I'd like you to open up to the book of John today. Deposited throughout the Gospel of John is a list of claims that Jesus made about who he is. They are often referred to as the I am statements of Jesus because they begin with those two simple words, I am. When someone with the significance of Jesus says the things that we're going to look at, Stuff happens. Those claims can kick us in the pants. 
They can painfully reveal our hypocrisy. They can reveal our shallowness. They can help to jolt us back onto track when we get off track, when we wander away. And these claims also can comfort us. They can bring us comfort like nothing else can comfort us. They can give us reassurance and peace for life unlike anything else that someone can say. But most importantly, these claims can help anyone who will look at them and be honest about them and delve into them to think about Jesus the right way for who he really is, the way that we're supposed to look at him. The very first of those great I am statements is in the sixth chapter of John. So if you got John, get on over to chapter six. And before we jump into the background of what we're going to be reading from there today, let me remind you of something that Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan. Remember, he was 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan. He was there, he was on a 40-day fast. And Jesus, who is fully God, and at that time also fully man, is fully hungry. And Satan looks to him and says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones be turned into bread. Do you remember what Jesus did? He fired scripture at him. Specifically, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It stands written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man will live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus reviewed there an important fact that I want us all to remember this morning. Every good sermon should have at least one good point. And if there's one thing you walk out with this morning, here it is right here. We often confuse our appetite for lesser things for what we really need for life. That's really what John 6 spells out for us, and we're going to see it today. Jesus and the disciples near the beginning of John 6 have just heard the news that John the Baptist has been executed. This is Jesus' cousin, a man who was greater than all people, according to Jesus. There was no one like John. He's been executed. So they have pulled back from the crowds to the north of the Sea of Galilee, there's a satellite view of the Sea of Galilee. You can see about, it's eight miles wide, 13 miles long, shaped kind of like a melting ice cream cone. I don't know what you would call it. Anyway, up near the north part there is what we're looking at today. We're not exactly sure where this story starts from, where Jesus is going to feed a huge multitude of people, but we do know that it ends up in the north uh, at Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. By this time, Jesus has gained a reputation. The news of him healing and teaching is getting out, and so crowds are chasing after him. And out there, where they're going to meet near the seashore, they're not near a good food source. So Jesus sees these thousands of people and takes the learning opportunity to teach and test his disciples. Where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? The answer is found in the lunch of a little boy who was willing to give it to them. So Jesus has the crowds arranged in groups. Jesus takes this lunch, a little boy's food, five little barley loaves and two little sardine-like fish. 
And he begins to break it apart and pass it out. And over time, look at the end of verse 11 in chapter 6. At the end of verse 11, it says, they had how much? They had enough. My translation says, as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says, when they had eaten their fill. Verse 13, look at it. Twelve large baskets were filled up with the leftover bread. So Jesus had just fed a crowd of 5,000 or so men and their family members that were with them with one little meal, a snackable. This miracle that we read about in John chapter 6 is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Think about that for a second. Jesus will remind the disciples about it later. He's going to reference, do you remember this? And right now, as we read it in John 6, it is serving a purpose for the lives of the crowds next to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus left no room for doubt that this was a miracle. Everyone was filled. There were leftovers. And just to make it obvious, there were then 12 doggy baskets left over. Let me point out a couple of important lessons that this miracle teaches before we get to the I am statement here in John chapter 6. Number one, Jesus can meet our needs and go way beyond that. Do you believe it? Jesus can meet our needs. This story makes it really obvious. It wasn't a mistake that he made too much. We often sound like the disciples, I think. We take a look at what we have in our hands and we ask questions like, what can we do with so little? What could be done with what I have? But when we take that, that that is in our hands, and we put it into the hands of Jesus, he can work with it, and he does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Jesus can meet our needs and go way beyond that. I look at this story, and I'm also reminded that Jesus doesn't want us to be wasteful with what he provides. You know, one of the hazards of having plenty and beyond is that we start to get wasteful and careless with what we have. You ever run into that? Some of you are going, no, but I'd love to try it out. Well, that tends to happen when we have too much. We tend to get sloppy and wasteful. Let me suggest to you this morning that having plenty doesn't mean that you slack off as a good steward. What it means is you've been given a great opportunity to become generous. I wonder what happened to those 12 baskets of bread fragments. Here's the third thing. Jesus wants his followers to live as if he'll take care of their needs. Not too long after this, Jesus is going to turn to his disciples and remind them, recall this event. And the point of that is for them to remember that he worked a miracle and that they shouldn't worry. Does Jesus know when we need to eat? Does Jesus know how much we need? Does Jesus know how to make sure we have enough in life? Sure. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Answer, absolutely. So don't be anxious, Jesus teaches. Don't be anxious, he knows. 
The crowds knew something amazing had just happened. They knew of Jesus' reputation as a healer. They knew that Jesus had great wisdom, that his teaching was outstanding. And they had just witnessed this amazing miracle where he fed all of them. So what do they do? Verse 15, they're going to make him king. They're going to put him in charge of the Jewish nation and have him lead a revolt against Rome. So at this moment, at the peak of popularity, Jesus has a choice to make. He could accept this groundswell of supportive fans, or he could stay on mission. He stays on mission. He sends his disciples out onto the lake on a boat while he slips away in the dark, back up onto a mountain, and prays. There's a storm. There are 12 scared men who are out in that storm on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and they are scared as Jesus comes walking to them on the water, Peter goes through his whole episode of wanting to walk on water too. It works for a little bit. And then when Jesus gets in the boat, he calms the storm with a word, and they find themselves landing in that boat in Capernaum. It is the next day where we begin reading in John 6. Jesus is now teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, and the people who had been fed the day before have found him. That's where we start reading John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? I have drawn a big question mark and exclamation point in the margin of my Bible. These are the people who were just fed by him with that little boy's lunch. So what are you going to do, Jesus? Do a sign. Really? I digress. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Follow me down in uh, verse 48, where Jesus repeats this. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now listen to what Jesus is getting across here carefully. Because the day before this, he was at the height of popularity in their eyes. And in just a few minutes, by verse 66, at the end of this chapter, we're going to read that many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. These were the crowds who were chasing after Jesus. In fact, they had jumped into boats to get to Capernaum, to find him. And according to Jesus, there were two things going on. Signs, which they really hadn't paid good attention to, and food. That wasn't what they needed. At least, not as much as they needed the bread of life. That's the point of John chapter 6. When people have a compulsive eating disorder where they eat non-food items like clay and paper and glue and hair and flaking paint and other things. There is a name for that. It's called a pica disorder. Have you ever heard of that? A pica disorder. There's a form of it where someone eats dirt. That's called geophagia, dirt eating and you think, doesn't every child from like age six months to two do that? Well, kind of. About 30% of kids from ages one to six are affected with this condition called the pica disorder. And on rare occasions, pregnant women are faced with it too. Pickles and ice cream are actually a food item. I'm not speaking about that. But needless to say, when someone has this disorder, it can lead to some serious health problems. And it comes especially from this, from desiring to eat something other than what the body really needs. That's the pica disorder. Made me think of celery. <laughs> Poor celery, of all the vegetables, it takes a lot of abuse, doesn't it? One of my favorites that I ran into this past year. Celery, when you have that sudden urge to bite into water with hair in it. <laughs> Celery. Aside from its reputation, there's not a whole lot of nutritional value in celery. In fact, I'm of the opinion that God created celery to be a delivery system for peanut butter. That's pretty much its purpose that it serves. Because by itself, it's not overly satisfying, and that's probably why it gets bad-mouthed a lot. Anybody who is eating lots and lots of celery because they're on a diet or something like that, and they're eating lots and lots of just celery, they could tell you what they're really hungry for. 
And it's not celery. What are you hungry for? What are you really hungry for? This event that we're reading about here in John chapter 6, the more I look at this, this is our culture, but it's 2,000 years ago. This is our culture. People today are clamoring. They're on their phones. They pull up maps and social media and videos and games and news. It's all right there. And they're clamoring for it. What are you clamoring for? Just like the crowds on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee, running from place to place to find Jesus because they're searching for something, people are clamoring. How about you? Are you satisfied yet? You guys who pull up porn, you girls who are enamored with gossip and glamour and fame, you older folks who maybe camp out watching news 10 hours a day, is that satisfying you? Has Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, finally left you feeling all fulfilled in life? Let me answer that for you. No, it hasn't. If it did, why do you keep going back to it? Why do you find yourself no smarter, no more at peace about the future, no closer to where you want to be in life? Ask anybody who you're wanting to get to do something. Oh, like sign up for handyman or something like that. Ask anybody the, the question, can you do this? And the reason that they'll say they can't is because they don't have enough time. And yet they are using up all of their time clamoring for these things. So whatever it is you're clamoring for, it's using your time, right? Pick the thing, whatever it may be in your life that is apart from Jesus, whether it is a neutral thing or a destructive thing that you tend to turn to for satisfaction and ask this question, has it satisfied you? The answer is no. I want to tell you that those things will never satisfy you. In fact, Nothing material in this world can satisfy you. One might even say we often confuse our appetite for lesser things with what we really need in life. If you listen to all of Scripture, you'll hear that message throughout the whole Bible. Solomon was a man who tried it all. He tried to find satisfaction in every place he could look. And he had the means Here's what he said, Ecclesiastes 1.8b, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Chapter 5, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Chapter 6, verse 7, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never, never satisfied. Read the Psalms again and again and again. Because in the Psalms, you'll often find a description of what will give you satisfaction. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 103, 
Verse 5, it, it speaks about the, the benefits of the Lord, and it says, it is he who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a list of the, the blesseds. We call them the Beatitudes, right? Nine Beatitudes, nine blessed listed there. Number four in this, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's another verse. You'll see it on a lot of people's walls, on little cards, little reminders. Philippians 4.13. Boy, does it get used out of context all the time. Go ahead and laugh about that, and then don't do it anymore. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, right? You know that verse. You've used it wrong too, haven't you? It's not a blanket statement that you just pull up as a supplement for every deficit in your life. Oh, not a problem, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Really? Are you really sure that you should attempt to do a tail drag 360 nose roll with an indie grab to a pretzel on your snowboard off of this 50-foot ski jump? Well, yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sure, you can also do six months of rehabilitation through Christ who will strengthen you when you're recovering from that. The context there in Philippians 4.13 is about commitment. It is about having an appetite for what we really need in life. Paul says, I've, earned, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is what that verse is about. Those are the words of someone who understands what it means to delight in and long for and live for the living bread, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. The bread of life. Not only did he claim that you cannot be fully satisfied in life without it, but he claimed to be it. What do you do with someone who says things like that? <laughs> As we keep looking these next weeks at the I am statements in the book of John, we're going to see that those are not the kind of things that people say about themselves. Bread of life, living bread from heaven? 1950, C.S. Lewis wrote this in an essay called, What Are We to Make of Jesus? He said, we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. I wonder, as you've looked at it in John chapter 6 this morning, what effect has the claim of Jesus to be the bread of life had on you? Do you adore him? Are you convinced that he really is this life-sustaining element that you are dependent on now and life-giving element that gives you eternal life forever?
Or maybe you're offended. Maybe these words of Jesus offend you. Maybe you don't like the threat of somebody dethroning you from the control room of your life. Amen to that. Maybe it really bothers you that Jesus said he should be so important to you. Okay, if that's you this morning, let me ask you, what's the other thing or things that you have decided in your life to go ahead and set ahead of Jesus and to clamor for? Are you satisfied by it? You have confused your appetite for lesser things with what you really have a need for in life. You're not the first, you're not alone, but you're also eating celery sticks in a vain effort to get full, and it isn't going to happen. And you could change that today. Maybe you're terrified, maybe you've spent all your attention in life, all your focus trying to find satisfaction in ways that have never worked, and you've been missing it all this time, and now it's suddenly the light starting to flicker on, and you're saying to yourself, it's too late. Let me tell you, it's not. I don't find anything in Scripture that says, well, as much time as you've wasted and as much of your life as you've thrown under the bus to this point, it really doesn't matter anymore what you do. Oh, yes, it does. And if you suddenly found out that eating a certain food, you know, is bad for you, oh, I've been eating dirt. And simply eating the right food would be good for you? Would you say, well, I've been eating dirt for so long, it really doesn't matter anymore. Yes, it does. You'd change your diet, wouldn't you? When Jesus taught us to pray, one of the things he said to say to God is, give us this day our daily bread. And he wasn't talking about a dietary thing. He wasn't saying that's all you should eat is bread. Bread was a general term, right? Our food. That's how we use it. That's how we talk about food. When we talk about somebody who provides income in a home, we refer to that person as the bread winner. Not because he's a winner necessarily, And not because it's just for bread. It's a way that we speak about that. Sometimes money gets referred to as bread or dough, right? Think about that one, dough. We need, we all do, we need that physical bread to live. But Jesus said this. Jesus said he is the living bread. That he is the bread of life. You see, real life that lasts forever that isn't just this physical life, that comes from Jesus, the bread of life. You could come find life in Jesus today. You know, as, as wonderful as creation is, I got to look at it this morning. You do too. It's free every morning when the sun comes up. It was a beautiful sunrise this morning. God put that there. As beautiful and wonderful as that is, I still find this, that there is nothing about this physical creation that fully satisfies me in life. Nothing. But you can be fully satisfied with the bread of life. His name is Jesus. Maybe this morning 
you would like to take that step that says, I'm going to surrender to the great one who makes such statements about himself and who verified that they are true by predicting his own death and rising from the dead just as he said he would do. That's pretty good. That's Jesus. If you're ready to make that kind of a commitment this morning, if you're ready to look at his claims and rather than be offended, embrace that. That's what this part of us being together is all about. And I want to make that invitation on his behalf to you because it is to every person who will return, respond to him. Stand up with me, please. Here's what we're going to do. You think about the words of Jesus today. You consider whether you think these claims of his are true, that he came from heaven, that he wasn't just a man, that he came and gives life to people in a way that nobody else can. You consider if you believe those words are true or not this morning. If you believe they're true, then you consider how is that showing up in your life? If you're already a follower of Jesus, that's an everyday given. That ought to be happening every day. This Lord who we follow is who he claimed. Amen? And we're not ashamed to say that. We're not ashamed to tell others about that. We ought to be doing that on a regular basis. This ought to push you to do that today. If you haven't become a follower of Jesus, why not? Why are you eating the celery sticks? <laughs> we can just go straight to the peanut butter and skip the celery sticks and have life in Jesus. You could have that today. And I say it funny, but it's, it's serious. It's real life. And it starts now, and then it lasts forever. You could begin that today. If you're ready to make that choice, we are ready for you to step forward. Acknowledge who Jesus is. Acknowledge your need for him. Be baptized into him today and start a new life. That's his invitation to you. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to be down here at the front. While that's going on, it's a great time just to step down. Talk to me about your decision today. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for moments like this. We are here living, breathing, regardless of where our lives have been for the years and days up to this point, we have this opportunity from you. By your grace, Father, we have the chance to turn to you if we've turned away. And by your grace, we have the opportunity to have life forever in you. Please today, Lord, let your word do its work. Not the secondary, temporary, physical things, but your word do its work in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.